Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney, and we're recording today here in Amiskwichi, Wiskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory on the banks of the mighty Kasiskasawanasipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is uh, Jamie Livingstone, an associate professor of criminology at St. Mary's University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Jamie has been studying and teaching about issues at the intersection of mental health, substance use, and criminal justice systems for over 20 years, and led the very first study in Canada to examine the experiences of people with mental illnesses and their interactions with police. Jamie, uh, welcome to the Progress Report. Great. Thanks for having me. So uh, thank you so much for coming on. I've followed your work uh, for some time now. You might call me like a bit of a fanboy, but like, <laughs> as you may have guessed, listener from the like intro and like the, the work that Jamie does, uh, we're here to talk about civilian-led kind of mental health crisis response and crisis diversion work and, you know, dealing with mental health calls. You know, this is an issue that comes up over and over and over again, right? Where police show up to a mental health call and far too often kill the person that needs help. And that's why it was so bizarre to me when I saw this. Um, I just I was just following your Twitter account because I follow you. And there was, you were reacting to something that our uh, associate minister of mental health and addictions, Mike Ellis, was saying. There was a press conference that they were doing. Um, and I think this is as good of a way to introduce the concept of what we're talking about as anything. So here's the quote that got you furious. Here's the quote from Mike Ellis. We know that the police must be an integral part of the recovery-oriented system of care that we are building, said Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Mike Ellis. We are creating a comprehensive system of care that has included police at the center of the process. And so why did that make you, as you said on your Twitter account, furious? That is terrible. It's a terrible idea. And it is just so consistent. Like I've been following what the UCP party has been doing in Alberta since they came into power because of my interest in various issues, including like the drug poisoning crisis, et cetera. But, you know, the idea, the idea that police are the center of a care system is probably the worst idea I've ever, I've ever heard. And anyone who has any knowledge of how mental health and substance use systems work would never be saying such a statement unless they have deep investments in police and want to see, uh, you know, police powers expanded, police budgets expanded, and um, really their base is supporting these ideas. So there's like political opportunity that comes along with some of these uh, really terrible ideas. I've been working in the mental health system for over 20 years. So bef before I became a professor, I worked in the health system in the BC government. And, you know, this is just a, such a terrible idea because, um, We'll get into the the reasons why it's why it's so terrible, but I think they're pretty. Um, they're they're it's it's not hard to figure out what the problems are, but um, it's just I, when I saw it, my jaw dropped and I felt like throwing my computer out the window. Yeah, like Benjamin Perrin, Perrin uh, former um, Stephen Harper, you know, criminal justice advisor, uh, and I think a law professor now. He had a very funny kind of reply to this, which is like, there's simply no other part of the healthcare system where you would 
where police would be at the center of it, right? Like, would you put police at the center of like your cancer care system at your like, uh, you know, a nephrology unit? Your like, is there any other part of the of the like mental he- of the healthcare system where police would be at the center of it? Like, it is bizarre to even think of. It's 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 really really bizarre, um, but it's you know a, a consequence of fifty years of, or more of our community systems being so under resourced, um, and people with mental health issues being so neglected, um, and so it, you know with certain social problems and health issues that were formerly just hidden away and locked up in psychiatric units when when people started you know living in communities without adequate services and resources, um, what were like, what our health issues became issues of policing and, and social control. And, and that was kind of allowed by our healthcare system and has continued um, for at least 50 years, you know, of persistent neglect of people in our communities that don't have, you know, various needs met. And when those needs are met, then the police you know, are turned to for the solutions. And and this, you know, what might have been kind of an accidental kind of situation is now certainly used by certain political um, parties in, in, in order to win elections and to see police as the solution for these social problems. When in fact, I'm a criminologist. I know that police are not the solution to these problems and, act, and actually um, cause a lot of harm um, when we see them and design systems such that they're, um, perceived to be the solutions to some of these issues. So, so let's uh, get back to one. So like, okay, Mike Ellis and the UCP want, for some reason, want police to be a, at the center of the like mental health care system and then the crisis response system. But, you know, what, what you've been working on is, you know, there's been an explosion recently kind of post George Floyd uh, of civilian led, you know, unarmed groups that are doing pre-hospital mental health care crisis response work. And that is one of the big reasons why I wanted to bring you on. You, you were posting about how like these have, these, you know, these new programs have exploded. And, but before we even get to that, why don't you kind of walk us through the biggest issues that you see, you know, know, as a criminology professor, when police are involved in mental health crisis calls? Oh boy, it's a long list. Um, but I, I think at the top of that list should be you know, fatal, fatal police shootings. Um, so people in crisis have relatively high risk of being fatally shot by police. And the risk is even greater if people in crisis are Black, Indigenous, or belong to other racialized groups. And so, of course, that's the, the harm that springs um, you know, to great significance and importance around this area. And then every year we see coroner inquest after coroner inquest here in Canada investigating, you know, problems with police response to mental health crises or wellness checks. And that had ended in a person, um, typically a person who's racialized, being fatally shot. And uh, I see most, if not all, of these deaths as being preventable. So, you know, number one big issue is that occasional, I shouldn't say often, because more often than not, these um, uh, these encounters don't end in, of course, a, a fatal police shooting. But when they do, it's it's entirely preventable. I think the the other, you know, really really big issue uh, when police are involved 
is that um, there's always a, a chance that things will escalate into violence when police are present or and involved in crisis situations. And in part, as like numerous coroner inquests have have uh, underlined, it's a product of how police are trained. Um, they're trained to rapidly contain and control situations that they perceive to be dangerous. And I want to emphasize that they perceive to be dangerous because there's stigma that's contributing to this. And then this leads police to act in ways that are unhelpful for resolving crisis situations, like shouting commands, deploying tasers, using physical restraints, handcuffing people, you know, as a, you know, default practice to handle situations, which is the opposite of how we know to effectively respond to crisis situations. Uh, And then the other reason why things escalate quickly into violence is because people often react negatively to police for a variety of reasons. And those reasons are sometimes connected to their own trauma or their own negative experiences with the police or the fact that they belong to communities that have had long histories of collective trauma involving the police. Um, But also because um, sometimes fear and vulnerability is heightened when people are experiencing certain symptoms of mental illness. Um, And so seeing police can make them automatically feel more unsafe and behave as though they're they're under threat. So you know the the fatalities and violence, but also the risk. You know how this contributes. Police involvement con- contributes to stigmatization of people with mental health issues. You know, like reinforcing the idea that people are dangerous criminals and need involuntary uh, criminal justice or course of forms of care. But also con- contributes to criminalization of people with mental illness by um, paving the way for them to interact with criminal justice agents in ways that are unnecessary and uh, are really arbitrary and can be done in other sorts of ways. So those are the kind of big, big issues. And there's kind of a long list of them, but that's how I see them. Yeah, and the, the tragedy and the preventable the preventable tragedy part of all of this is is the the saddest part, right? And wherever you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't have to go far too far back in the news. To, you know, to find a recent event where po- police have, have murdered someone or killed someone in the context of doing a mental health call or, or murdering someone, killing someone who was going through a mental health crisis. Like in Calgary, just recently, a man named Vlad Jortuel, you know, a South Sudanese man, was shot dead by police in front of everyone at a bus stop. And it was, you know, that was like a month, couple of months ago. Uh, like in, in Nova Scotia, I assume there's been, you know, something recently in the past few years, Toronto, Vancouver, like these things, these happen, these tragedies happen all the time. And they're, um, again, preventable, avoidable, uh, you know, but if you want to prevent and avoid them, you have to have people who don't have guns on their hips to be taking care of these situations. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what is really, um, uh, I think, uh, terrifying, but also like makes me really angry is that healthcare systems can kind of uh, watch this happen time and time again, mm-hmm. and and then not take responsibility for or accountability for these kind of really horrible tragedies um, for communities, for families, for you know all sorts of of course for people who are. Um, the victims of these uh, fatal police shootings, but also like more more than just the the, the, the fatalities is the, is the violence, and, um, and that is is also 
completely pre preventable if systems were designed dif differently. Um, and that's where I see, you know, like a lot of um, neglect from our healthcare systems by, by not preventing these things from happening in ways that, you know, they, they really should be taking responsibility for. Yeah, it's not just a police issue. It's a healthcare issue. It's a society issue. It's just that at the end of the day, it's the police that get called and they solve problems the way police solve problems, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So walk us through, you know, like what, um, you know, like the, the, presumably these systems have been set up in other places. What is a civilian led mental health crisis response program? You know, what do they look like? How do they work? I know there's a lot of variety in, in kind of how these programs are put together and offered, but kind of like what, uh, what's the, like the general scan of like, what are these things and how do they work? Yeah, I mean, as the they go by different names. Sometimes they're civilian programs or mental health crisis response programs, and sometimes they're non-police or community-led or that sort of thing. But essentially, as the name suggests, it, it's crisis, like people who go to crisis situations and are dispatched to crisis situations in their communities without the police. And so you have uh, unarmed civilians uh, responding uh, to crisis types of situations. And um, as you mentioned at the beginning of this, it's so bizarre that we have police involved. Like, and often, you know, the as the default response to mental health crisis situations. Um, and it's really because, like, you know, mental health crises have become over time defined as uh, public safety issues rather than health issues. And I know people have wild imaginations of what mental health crises look like um, because they read it in the news and that sort of thing. And, and normally a mental health crisis is, is, does not involve, you know, like the types of imagine, imaginary worst case scenarios that people's minds often go to. But it's often just someone, you know, who's uh, having problem coping and they're uh, feeling distressed, maybe having thoughts of suicide and just, you know, are feeling really down and, and um, feeling really vulnerable. And so, you know, having police respond to that makes absolutely no sense, even though we've designed, like we've enshrined police involvement in legislation and we've designed our systems to center police in many of these crisis responses. And we, over time, this has become imprinted on our brains and our belief systems that crisis response requires police when, <laughs> when we know we know that, you know, it can be a, a different way. So, um, and it often takes like a tragic event or a series of lawsuits or, or a social movement like Black Lives Matters to help us think, think differently and instigate change around these things. So kind of your question about what do these teams look like? They, they come in all sorts of shapes and forms. Um, we've unco uncovered like more than 80 of these programs that are operating mostly in, in the United States, but some in Canada and as well as elsewhere. Um, but what these programs look like is that they're teams that um, uh, come to someone, wherever they are, it could be their home or their community when they're experiencing a mental health crisis. And the basic framework is like very simple. So someone calls emergency phone number like 911, but it's not always 911. And emergency dispatchers are sufficiently trained to identify when it involves a mental crisis. 
And yeah, then here the, in here in Edmonton, we have like two one one is the number you're encouraged to call if you see someone in crisis. So. Right. So that that that's another you know alternative, especially for people. You know, nine one one is often seen as being problematic by some people in communities because of their close affiliation with police, and so sometimes these programs um, are create special special phone numbers that don't have that kind of affiliation with with police and 211 might might be one of those things i don't i don't know um, but sometimes these crisis programs have their own numbers numbers as well and so whoever's taking the call decides hopefully they have like appropriate training to decide when something involves a mental health crisis and they decide if it's appropriate to dispatch a civilian team um, when it exists in a particular community um, and that's a, an important point, like when it's deemed imp- appropriate for a civilian team instead of the police to respond to an event, because that takes all sorts of shapes and forms as well, like what's deemed appropriate, which I can touch on later on. Um, but the civilian team itself is comprised of like a combination of a mental health service providers, peer specialists, in some communities it involves paramedics, and some communities it involves like other healthcare providers. And they basically go to a person who's in crisis and take care of the person's urgent crisis needs. And many of these programs also have the responsibility of supporting the person afterwards, um, which may involve connecting them with appropriate services as well as providing follow-up care. So that's kind of what the teams look like. And, you know, the, the best teams, I would say, or best programs are not standalone teams, but are rather supported by like a good comprehensive crisis service system. Um, so you have like crisis stabilization programs, you have uh, residential programs for people in crisis. There's, um, you know, good hospital-based services and transport services that um, don't involve the police. So, so there's kind of a c- continuum of services that, that these programs are supported by. And so what places have, have put in programs that, you know, are, have been successful, you know, civilian-led mental health crisis response programs, like where can we look to for places that have done good work on this? Um, I guess successful is difficult to talk about since many of these programs haven't really been fully evaluated and studied. Um, however, uh, you're the academic. Yeah. yeah. We know we were talking <laughs> about this earlier, right? It's all the money goes to, um, actually delivering the services and there's no, there was no money left over to actually be like, so what, what, yeah, like to do KPIs or like to do the kind of like management stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, the way the research has worked um, for the past decade uh, has also, has actually been uh, to reinforce police involvement in mental health crises. So you have quite a bit of research on things like crisis intervention teams or CIT, which is specialized training for police to respond to mental health crises. You have quite a bit of research on co-response teams in which a police officer is paired with another like a social worker or a nurse. So the re- research is actually working in ways that reinforce this relationship um, and center the police and crisis response. So there's actually been very little research that I've uh, reimagined this, this problematic situation in which, in which police are, are, um, are the center of crisis response. But, but I guess you can think of like success in terms of programs that have been along for, around for a long time. And there are a couple of programs that people often think of in, in this space um, that have been along um, for more than 30 years. Um, so one of those programs is uh, the acronyms are CAHOOTS, 
uh, which stands for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets. Um, this has been around since 1989. It's, it's a program in Eugene, Oregon. And basically, it's someone calls 911, and instead of sending police, um, another civilian team consisting of like a medic, like a nurse or an EMT, emergency uh, medical technician, uh, paired with a crisis worker um, uh, who, who uh, works in the mental health field. Sometimes it's a person with lived experience. So they're dispatched to attend to a variety of types of crisis situations. And they provide like stabilization and uh, assessment and advocacy and thing, things like that. This has been been going on, in, as I mentioned, in, in Eugene, Oregon for more than 30 years. It saved millions and millions of dollars for that city. And, um, you know, now they're responding to like over 20,000 calls a year and they're diverting. Um, I think the estimates are between five and 10% of calls from police. It should be more, but it's between five and 10% of all calls that police go to this, this team. And they've spent several decades building trust with the community um, and employing people with lived experience. Uh, and the success is in the fact that they've existed for such a long period of time. They're responding to um, quite a high volume of calls and that um, among these calls, very few actually require police backup to be called. I think it's less than 1% of all mm -hmm. of these calls require like the police to intervene in, in situations in which there's concerns about safety. So that's like a U.S. program that's been around for a long time that many people think of as being successful. Um, the other program I think of is, is, is a place in Toronto. So it's close, closer to home and well, I guess it depends where you are in Canada, but it's Canadian anyways. And it's called the Gerstein Crisis Center. And it's been around as long as Cahoots. It was established in Toronto in 1989. And it's a real like community-based um, program that provides crisis services to people living in Toronto. So they have their own like 24-7 telephone support line. They have a mobile crisis team. They have like short-term crisis beds where they can actually provide people with services. And oh, wow. recently, they, recently they are recognized by Human Rights Watch as, as one of the best practices in non-coercive mental health services. Um, so last year in Toronto, for example, um, the Gerstein Crisis Center, uh, despite the fact that they're like totally underfunded, they kind of they engage with like 35,000 people in crisis it includes like almost 2,000 mobile visits and and they're they're really like stand out in terms of their engagement with community and they're working with people who have lived experiences um so i would recognize you know that program as being successful for in its own community even though it hasn't been used to its full capacity interesting well it's nice to know that like other places have been doing this uh, for a long time and have a lot of experience. I, th I think it's going to be instructive to kind of walk uh, our audience through the kind of cornucopia <laughs> of programs that all kind of do similar things um, so here in Edmonton. The cornucopia of programs, that's something. So I'm working on a project right now that's, uh, first of all, trying to identify um, as many programs as we can. Um, and that's really difficult to do because these, as you mentioned earlier, it, these programs are um, uh, 
being, you know, like there's a proliferation of these programs quite rapidly, particularly since 2020, um, post George Floyd's murder. Um, so we're seeing almost every week we're discovering kind of a new program and uh, they come in all sorts of shapes and forms. Some of them are like real, like mutual support community-led initiatives that are completely detached from institutional systems. And I'm thinking of programs like it's called Mental Health First Aid that are in Oakland and Sacramento, California, I believe. And this is like a Black-led, um, community-led initiative in which people with you know specialized training um, that aren't necessarily part of the institutional system come together to try to provide a um, a good solution for people in their community that doesn't involve the police, doesn't involve coercion, and doesn't involve the, the medical system because of various issues related to that. So you have these kind of like mutual help um, programs that I think are really important um, uh, alternatives for, for people, especially if they um, are have reservations about engaging with the healthcare system because of various traumas and harms they may have experienced in that system. And then you have like something something in between and then something that looks more like a ambulance on wheels, um, like a mental health ambulance on wheels. So instead of paramedics, you have mental health pra uh, practitioners or clinicians that are form of the uh, part of the formal healthcare system and they're dispatched like a paramedic or an ambulance would be. And they're very much like clinically driven um, professionalized, institutionalized types of responses to um, to people in crisis situations that have really lost connection with com with community. Um, so, and then you have lots of things, types of things in yeah. between. All, and and in Edmonton, we we have it all. We've got you know the Reach Crisis Diversion Team. Yep. You know, this is a partnership between kind of a couple of social agencies and the Canadian Mental Health Association. And like the cops are a stakeholder in reach um, and, and this two-on-one thing, but it's not really clear what their involvement is. I mean, they're, they're the, it is a 24 seven line. You can call two one one, but it's like, it's, it's not ideal. They're obviously all of these, all of the, the things that are not cop related that we're going to be talking about right now are, are dramatically underfunded, especially compared to the cop stuff. Uh, but like, yeah, that's that's what we have here. And that's been around for a while. It's been around for like five or six years. I'd, I'd have to go. I wasn't able to find the original date of when they started, but it's it's been around for a while. But then, you know, alongside that, we have the police and crisis response team. And this is an Edmonton Police Service initiative. Uh, and it's like it's what you talked about, right? It's like police plus a nurse or a mental health therapist or and, you know, they get dispatched. Uh, like through the the 911 system, right? Yeah, I think I think, you know, the program that you mentioned earlier which is accessed through 211 and may divert some police, you know, calls that would normally go to police. I think that's really an excellent model to build off of and um the problem is is uh kind of the patchwork piecemeal type of um type of services. I mean, you don't see that in like police no, there's just a one-stop shop. Or... Call, call the police and the police show up, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's like very simple. It's very coordinated. It's, uh, you know, like it, it's, it's highly funded and uh, lots of support and lots of, you know, from leadership. And so compare that kind of 
model to what may exist in many communities, which are uh, often involve like community agencies doing what they can on top of uh, on top of their caseload and trying to you know serve their community. Trying to run a shelter, trying to yeah have social yeah. workers, yeah, exactly right. I mean, this PACT team has been around for a while too, but a, a recent creation of the Edmonton Police and really the thing that they've they've spent a lot of time hyping up here at the Edmonton Police Commission and, and in the media has been the HELP team, the Human Centered Engagement and Liaison Partnership. And this is police. These are essentially like. Uh, teams of like police with instead of a healthcare worker with social agency outreach workers and Mm. they're operating out of a shiny new building right by the downtown arena right by well where boyle street community services is going is is right now but will soon be moving um and yeah this is like police with social workers model as opposed to police with mental health care and addiction model mental health care and addiction specialist model i mean and uh i think that's that's something that should be could be rethought or should be rethought and i think a lot of lessons come from like defund the police type you know work and an abolitionist type of work in relation to how we want to imagine you know our 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 communities um and we don't want our communities to be police run um police states you know coercive systems carceral systems but we rather we want our communities to be functional communities in which we can support each other and we can have support that doesn't involve the criminal justice system. Yeah, and this, is- and this program, this help team really was a reaction to like, you know, George Floyd and 20, what happened in 2020 and BLM and the, the largest mass movement in modern history. Right. And, and so it's like, okay, well, like they, the, the cops kind of understood and internalized that like, okay, maybe cops shouldn't go to every call, but like, we still want to go to every call. So we'll, we'll have a social yeah. worker with us. Uh, and we still want to be like there every step of the way, but maybe the like social worker talks to the person first, you know? Well, I mean, you know, if you ask the police what the solutions are, they'll come up with police solutions. <laughs> it's not that, uh, you know, far of a stretch of the imagination to think of the types of things that police would would recommend and, and support. And it would, would involve their... Uh, kind of driving the ship and leading leading the way, or at least having um, a great degree of influence on in what these things look like. And I think that's really, really problematic. And is and is is not what you know how these programs should be designed and operated, which is like, and it's what 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 people want. You know, uh, our healthcare systems like to say that they're person centered, patient engaged, which is uh, a, which I think is a bit of a uh, imaginary type of scenario because very rarely are people with mental health issues act, asked about what they want. And I can't think of any study in which people with mental health issues were asked about crisis services and they said they want the police involved. Um, the, the studies and information I'm aware of in relation to when people with mental health issues are asked, um, they you might be shocked about this, but they want to be treated not as a criminal <laughs> and they want to be treated as a human being who needs support and not like someone who's done something bad that requires police intervention with the potential harms that come up, come along with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I think there's, there's, um, I, 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 I understand why police want police led solutions, but I think that ne- really needs to be rethought. Yeah, this is a $3.3 million program. It's a two-year pilot. 
uh, we're, I'm going to do kind of a roundup of all the fun any of these later, but uh, now we're going to get into the, like the recent, recent creations, like the community outreach transit team here in Edmonton is like, I don't know, it's like six, seven months old. Maybe uh, this is, this system is a transit peace officer. So, so like uh, not a, sworn officer but like a transit kind of bylaw officer essentially and an outreach worker and this program just got off the ground uh because of complaints about transit safety this is you know another pilot project um you know the early returns were quite positive and council city council here gave them more funding and increased the amount of kind of like even though it's quite small uh they increased the you know they would think they went from like two to three vans or something you know yeah, that's not what we should be doing. Um, when you think about community safety, that's not how community safety should be envisioned or how it should, you know, like there's there's like criminological theories around crime prevention through social development, it's called. And it's it's like building communities and supporting communities and properly resourcing communities to create solutions that don't involve the police and don't involve the criminal justice system. Um, and more and more you see you're seeing programs that are embedding police in the solutions in ways that um, uh, balloon police budgets and uh, reinforce uh, kind of police powers, uh, which is which is the opposite direction of where we should be heading. And that's why I reacted so strongly to um, Mike Ellis's claims that a recovery oriented system centers the involvement of police because uh most communities are moving in different directions than than that and trying to find ways to decouple the police from our uh, community uh, safety types of strategies. Mm-hmm. And the latest and greatest, again, of the patchwork of kind of things that have that have come up on this, this is a overdose prevention response team. This just, just got off the ground here in Edmonton. It's a small $200,000 pilot mobile team. They do overdose prevention and recovery. It's not, so it's not necessarily mental health care crisis focused. It's like just focused on overdose and uh, drug poisonings. And it's just like just healthcare workers. It's like, uh, yeah, it's like paramedics and nurses. And yeah, that's like a pilot project between like social agencies and like the downtown business association. Yeah. I mean, I mean, again, when you ask people what they want to see in the services, they're, they're saying that they want, um, they don't say they want the police. They say they actually don't, don't want the police involved when it comes to healthcare services, but rather they want somebody who can show compassion for their situation, somebody who um, helps them work through the situation that they're dealing with in, in mental crisis. It's the, the distress. They want someone who understands the trauma that they've experienced with various institutional systems, including the healthcare system, and knows how coercive interventions can exacerbate their trauma. And they ask for like peer-oriented services that um, are designed and delivered by people with lived experience so that you have someone who can offer empathy and support um, uh, in ways that are really helpful and, and uh, constructive for someone to resolve the, the situations that they're, they're dealing with. So more, the more and more that those types of services that um, endorse and follow those types of values can be created, I think, the more people may reach out for, for services, especially if they're you know, culturally appropriate and um, aren't a one-size-fits-all type of, type of program, but rather attends to um, people's, people's needs, but also their, their worries about engaging with, with service systems. 
Um, and so that's what I'm really pushing for in, in, in my work is to create those types of opportunities for people. Um, like it's a, it's not a radical idea to provide, you know, healthcare services that are, that meet the needs and wants of people, um, rather than pushing police delivered services down people's throats. Yeah, and back in 2020, you know, the height of the George Floyd stuff, Chief Dale McPhee here in Edmonton was in front of city council and said 30% of police calls aren't police work. But, you know, the Edmonton police budget is $485 million. And since that statement has come out, you know, there hasn't been an organization with the 30% of the Edmonton police budget's money to come along and take care of the 30% of calls that aren't police work, you know? Yeah, I would say if the police are saying it's 30% of the work that can go somewhere else, it's probably a double double that, um, <laughs> especially especially when you look at calls for services and what calls for services are normally, um, normally consist of. Um, and many of those calls for services, if appropriate, you know, alternatives existed, um, it, it would be uh, appropriately handled by people who aren't police. And uh, recently in Halifax, our um, Board of Police Commissioners funded a, um, a report uh, that was on defi- defining defunding the police. And many of our leaders um, in the African Nova Scotian community here in Halifax, as well as um, other leaders um, in our community, uh, spend some time talking to our community about about the concept of defunding the police, and their report points to all sorts of different ways that the police work that's normally handled by police can be um, handled by by other uh, organizations and groups that don't involve the police. You know, things from traffic, um, and they draw from a lot of different models um, that don't involve the police. Um, to resolve incidents involving traffic, um, but also, you know, like uh, social issues around homelessness and health issues around overdoses and and mental health crises and and all of those sorts of things. So I, I, I think if we really stretched our imaginations, you could see the majority of the calls that normally are dispatched to police handled by a well-resourced community. And I mean, the, the defund the police argument brings up the like, well, how do you fund it, right? I mean, I, th- I think, you know, you've brought up two ways to to think about how these services get delivered. And like one is, you know, through the healthcare budget and the other is through, you know, taking money from the police, defunding the police and putting that money into the, these civilian led, you know, mental health crisis response teams and however they look like. But, you know, just the fact that I think you've you've walked us through uh, you know, what those, um, you know, mental health crisis response programs should look like. And uh, yeah, like the police budget is so enormous, right? Like nearly half a billion dollars for one Mm -hmm. mid-sized Canadian city, uh, (laughs) you know, to, to run a police force. And, and then when you look at the money spent on crisis diversion, like, uh, you know, that, the the community outreach transit teams, which still have a transit peace officer attached to them, $1.4 million. You know, like the reach two-on-one line, I wasn't able to find exact dollar figures before uh, we started recording, but like at most it's like two to $3 million. Yeah. Uh, you know, this this uh, $200,000 for the, oh, just, just for overdose prevention response. Like we're talking about crumbs compared to, you know, a half a billion dollars. 
and, and even and in the context I mean, of and in the context of like a healthcare budget, it's like we spend like twenty two billion dollars on healthcare in the province of Alberta. You know, like yeah. So there's a there's a number of ways that these things can be funding, but it's it's important to acknowledge that when you deal with crises in ways that don't involve the police, you're actually and this is like proven out in places that, where these programs have been around for a long time, you can actually save um, money by by doing things by looking at like root cause types of solutions um, rather than uh, waiting for things to escalate into crisis and potentially, you know, like criminal types of events where you're spending an inordinate amount of money processing someone through the criminal justice system. Um, so there's policing costs, court costs, and then the costs associated with the uh, the penal system as well. Um, but rather than doing all of that, and then rather than waiting for someone to, you know, need a transport and stay at an emergency room, uh, you know, there, there's so much money that can be saved through prevention types of efforts. And, and these types of mental health crisis programs, you know, civilian mental health crisis programs can save, um, can save money and can, uh, through that money can be funded, you know, through the, the types of money saved to cities and provinces and territories and, and that sort of thing. But it will take new investment. And I think pulling that 30% <laughs> or whatever percent from, from the police is definitely one way to go about this. It's not only about like um, reallocating resources, but it's also about reallocating power uh, that comes along with with these sorts of efforts and actually investing in things that we 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 value. Um, but but the healthcare system and our federal government and the way it um, uh, sends money to the provinces uh, to pay for our healthcare system, I think. Um, more and more should go towards mental health services and substance use services so that people um, aren't having to access only access services when they're when they're in crisis but can have access to services when when they when they need it like responsive services yeah and, and I think what if, if I'm gonna drill down and kind of look at Edmonton and where I'm at and the I would, the problem I would diagnose would just be that like crisis diversion is like run off the side of, of a desk of, you know, a handful of nonprofits that are dealing with trying to run shelters or employing social workers or trying to feed people. There's no mm -hmm. like this single dedicated organization that's, that is only does mental health crisis response. And I think, uh, that, might be useful. I mean, we I like the, the Toronto example seems to, very instructive. You know, the cahoots model seems to be very instructive, and um, you know, and if I was to drill down, and and also it's, I just have to leave you with this, Jamie. So like our our police chief, um, who uh, just got exactly what he wanted when it came to a, a police uh, funding formula from from city council here, was actually in front of city council saying you know, I've looked at Cahoots, I've looked at Denver, we're way ahead of them. People are coming to us to learn about what Edmonton's doing. You know, he's kind of specifically referencing these these help teams that he's, you know, trying to holding up as the kind of paragon of what, what, what he's doing. And I mean, police chiefs are always going to say thing, things that benefit police chiefs, but I like, what would your response be? <laughs> What would you want to tell those Edmonton city councillors when a police chief stands in front of them and says, we're doing a great job on mental health crisis response? Um, well, I would ask them to ask people who have experienced a crisis in their local communities to 
find out the the adequacy of mental health crisis response um, because that's ultimately what we should be hearing from is people um, who've experienced a mental health crisis and the challenges they face in the existing system um, and also how the existing system often contributes to their, you know, their needs not being met and a whole host of, of harms. But, but on top of that, there's many people who uh, have just disengaged from from the from systems because they didn't find them helpful they didn't find them responsive they called and no one showed up or they were co- you know fa- they found the services to be overly coercive and and not uh, you know espousing peer oriented community led types of values um so i would really uh, problematize that statement that things are working working well um, I, when I'm not aware of any sort of evaluation or study that has actually asked the community uh, whether or not things are working well well for them, even in communities that have these civilian programs, there's a host of problems associated with these programs and limitations with these programs. Um, so, like limited hours, or people don't find the services to be useful, or they're overly connected to the police, or they're um, the, the types of calls that they respond to are too narrow um, so that um, police end up showing up for all sorts of calls that they shouldn't be showing up. So I, I think, um, you know, I'm not aware, and I've been doing this for, uh, for a number of years, I'm not aware of Edmonton as being a particular standout <laughs> in relation to best practices when it comes to civilian mental health crisis res- response. Um, I'm aware of other communities that have really demonstrated that over over decades, and have really built trust with communities um, that they are legitimate um, uh, programs that care for people in communities and really um, are trying to disassociate themselves from from police because of recognizing the types of um, harms that involving police can can create. Well, that's a fantastic place to leave it, uh, Jamie. I think the the kind of final thing I we get to before um, you know I ask you you know, how people can follow along with your work is that, you know, if you see someone who is having a mental health crisis, I would say, you know, don't call the cops unless you absolutely have to, uh, in Edmonton here or Alberta, call, call 211, right? Yeah. I, I, I think that's, that's, that's a, that's a good message, but also like, you know, often those people are in our own lives. So I've supported the people in my own life who struggle with mental health crises and, and the conversation needs to be what works for that person. Um, what, are the per- what does the person find supportive? Um, what does the person find, find helpful in trying to work within, within that person's wants and, and needs um, is really the way to go. But also making yourself aware of what may be available within your own community in relation to outreach services and non-police types of services that you might be able to draw on if you encounter a situation in which someone... Um, uh, and, and someone may need some external external help, and uh, that person has likely um, had difficult experiences with police and with healthcare systems. So acknowledging that's really important. Mm-hmm. And I haven't gotten this yet. I'm looking into it, but I, I I'm looking into getting mental health first aid training as well. So I'm unfamiliar. With, I don't know how familiar you are with those programs, but. Yeah, I think I think um, you know one of the th- some people who are working in this space um, are really working hard at um, sending the message that th- 
this type of work involves trying to trying to build capacity in communities uh, for for each other to, for us to take care of one another rely rather than relying so heavily on our institutional systems so over time we've become de-skilled in caring for one another and so it's quick for people to turn to institutional systems and call 911 um, when often uh, you know what's required is is a neighbor to take care of an, another neighbor and support one another so i think building skills like through mental health first aid but also about learning about resources and become, becoming familiar with people who are already working in the community in, in this space, like NGOs, is, is really important stuff to do. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Well, thanks so much uh, for this conversation, Jamie. I think it's been uh, very useful. I really do appreciate it. Uh, what's the best way for people to kind of follow along with the work that you're doing? Probably by on on Twitter, so you can find me at Jamie Livingston. I don't know what my handle is or anything like that, but I'm we'll, regular. We'll put it in I, the show notes. Don't worry Twitter. about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I use Twitter as a as a vehicle for informing people. Um. So if they can stand all the other nonsense that I tweet tweet about, then I often tweet about the projects that I'm that I'm working on. Yes, great follow. Um. And thanks so much for coming on. And folks, uh, if you like this podcast, uh, support it. Join the 500 or so other folks who help keep this little independent media project going. There is a link in the show notes, or you can go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, put in your credit card and contribute. We would really appreciate it. Also, if you have any notes or thoughts or comments, things you think I need to hear, I am very easy to get a hold of. I am also on Twitter uh, far too often at, at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at K at progressalberta.ca. Thank you to Jim Story for editing this podcast. Thanks to Cosmic Famu Communist for our theme. Thank you for listening and goodbye.